0: And we have been in a series on First Peter throughout the summer where we have been focusing on being steadfast, remaining faithful to Christ, not fleeing, not denying by our words or our actions in a time of fierce trial, persecution, mockery, laughter, belittling, or remaining steadfast in the face of temptation, that we would remain faithful. For God is faithful to us. And Peter has, in speaking to this congregation, this is known as persecution literature, in speaking to this small congregation in Rome under Nero's rule, they were certainly persecuted. And over and over again, he has encouraged them He has encouraged them with resources in the gospel of grace found in Christ to remain steadfast. He's given them rich, practical resources. And this morning, as he ends the letter with but with two verses, it's not a tack on goodbye. It's not a poetic greeting or departure. Every word here is, has meaning for what He is going to show us this morning is that one of the resources that God has given to us to make it through, to stand firm, as it says there in verse 12, He says, stand firm. Stand firm in it. Stand firm in the faith. Keep holding on to the grace that has been shown to you. That you are not orphans, but you're a son and you're a daughter. The resource that he leaves us imparting, is steadfast friends. That if we would stand firm, then we need steadfast friends. Friends that won't run away when they really see and get to know the real us. But also, friends that will stand with us. Perhaps we've fallen into a great temptation. They won't abandon us. Maybe we're facing a huge trial They won't be consumed by their own priorities or difficulties, but will stand fast with us that we might be steadfast. The challenge or the problem is that many of us in relationships would choose to be superficial or plastic or clean and tidy, never going much farther than the surface. And therefore, we never really become real before another person. And we never really know them. That's not what Peter has in mind. And in this community, he would encourage them, just as he would encourage us this morning, to not only have a steadfast friend, but to be a steadfast friend. Now, as we get ready to get into this message, I want to, right up front, I want to leave that with you. I want to give this as a throwdown to you. Do you have a person in your life that you would call a steadfast friend? Someone that, as Tim Keller would say, that when everybody else is walking out, they're walking in. Do you have a steadfast friend? Are you trying to do life on your own? Or do you just have superficial relationships? Or do you just have utilitarian relationships. In other words, they're practical in nature. He's a workmate. She's a neighbor. We, we share, you know, child-rearing practices, but it's just all kind of give and take and reciprocal, but we never get below the surface. Do you have a steadfast friend that knows you and you've given them permission to talk to you where you're vulnerable? And then secondly, secondly, and I leave these two for you to answer, are you a steadfast friend? Are you a steadfast friend to at least one person? Is one person's life, could they say, if they weren't in my life, if I didn't have them, if I didn't have you, I don't know how I would make it are you that person to at least one other person? And do you have a person like that that you can say, I don't know how I would make it without that person? What Peter says is that in Christian relationships and in Christian community, we must have this because they become the hands and the feet and the heart and the mind of Christ. Christ in them holds my hand in a trial and it's as if I'm holding Christ's hand. Christ in you ministering to me as steadfast friends, it is a tangible, physical expression of affection, of standing firm with me, of abiding with me, and it encourages me to stay steadfast. C.S. Lewis was a part of a group called the Inklings, and they met weekly at the Eagle and Child on Bridge Street. And one of the men that were, was a part of the Inklings, and there were about five of them, is, was Charles Williams. Now, Charles Williams became to C.S. Lewis one of his best friends out of these friends. Here's what he wrote about Charles Williams. He said, As far as the man... He's about 52 years old, of humble origin. There's still a trace of cockney in his voice. He's ugly as a chimpanzee, but he's so radiant, he emanates more love than any man I've ever known, that as soon as he begins talking, whether in private or in a lecture, he is transfigured and looks like an angel. In spite of his angelic quality, he is also quite an earthy person. And when Warney, Tolkien, he and I meet for our pint in a pub on Broad Street, the fun is often so fast, so furious, that the company probably thinks that we're talking body when, in fact, we're very likely talking theology. The steadfast friends that they, they became would share their work, their writings with one another. But more importantly, they shared their very heart with one another. Later, C.S. Lewis, standing at the grave of Charles Williams, said that when he turned and he left that day, he knew he still had the inklings. But there was a part that he left at the graveside that the inklings would be less because of the absence of Charles. There was a part of him that only Charles could bring out in that dynamic of their friendship. C.S. Lewis would tell you that there were certain men in his life that were steadfast friends. And I believe if he were here, then he would recommend and he would commend to us in the company that we keep that we find steadfast Christian friends and that we be a steadfast Christian friends if we're going to make it through. And so Peter, in closing, gives us three steadfast friends. He gives us an older man, Silvanus. He gives us a woman who's a steadfast friend. And then he gives us a younger man, Mark, who he calls his son. Let's look at these real quickly. And I want to encourage you to... Not necessarily feel like you've got to study in detail each one of these, but you might find that you learn something about one of them more than the other two, and hold on to that. But this morning, remember the challenge Do you have a friend like this, and are you a friend like this? Well, first of all, let's look at Sylvanus. We believe that Sylvanus is actually Silas out of Acts 15, verse 22, and we find there. In Acts 15, these words, uh, It seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers. What they're doing is they're sending a letter to all the churches about this new, vibrant Christian community that is being formed with both Jew and Gentile alike. And so as this community is being formed, Silas, who is literally a pillar in the church along with Paul, he will later in Acts 15 not only disperse the letter and go individually to churches, he was quite well known in the churches, but he will partner with Paul on his missionary journeys. And we will see him imprisoned, chained alongside of the Apostle Paul. And as we see him there, we find that he is now with Peter. And with Peter, he's coming forward as a faithful brother. Now, we don't read a lot about uh, Silas in detail other than he always appears to be a number two guy. May his tribe increase. You know... He doesn't have to have billing over Paul. He doesn't have to have billing over Peter. There's not a lot of detail about his ministry, but he certainly ministered. He was a steadfast friend to hold up and put the others forward. And he was very content to do that. He doesn't seem to be offering a lot of advice or conversation as well, but he comes along, as one of those men who comes alongside of Peter, and Peter says they were so intimate that he was a faithful brother. Think about what it means to be faithful to someone. And I don't believe that he's simply saying that he was faithful to Christ. Oh, he was certainly true and faithful and honorable, faithful to the gospel that had won him. But Peter says he was a faithful brother to me. Henry Nowen, in his book, The Wounded Healer, talks about a story in the Jewish Talmud where a rabbi goes to Elijah who's in a cave and he says, where is Jesus? And he said, he's in the city gate. And he said, how will I recognize him? And he says, oh, you'll recognize Jesus when you go to the city gate. So he goes to the city gate And he sees that there's a clutch of wounded men and women. And that they are all taking off their bandages, taking all of their bandages off, and then they're putting on fresh bandages, except for one, and it's a wounded Jesus. Jesus takes one bandage off at a time and then puts on a clean bandage instead of all the wounds exposed at one time. The rabbi asked him, why do you do that? And he says, so that at a minute's notice, I can go and attend to the wounds of others without my own wounds impeding me. Henry Nouwen goes on to translate and says, we need wounded healers in our life, people that have been there. No one can lead you out of the wilderness except someone that's been through the wilderness. We need wounded healers, but we don't need them to be so full of difficulties, so full of wounds, so preoccupied, so full of self pity that I'm either always in the relationship ministering to their wounds or no one can minister to me because I'm such a, I've just got so many wounds that are exposed at one time. Silas is not perfect, but there was something about him that allowed him to be with Peter and to encourage him such that Peter could then say, I, I regard him as a faithful brother, exhorting, declaring the grace of God. We need men like that in our life. Proverbs says that a brother is born For adversity. It is normal, Christian, in your relationships to see needy, weak, wounded people. That's normal. It's normal to find that there is a need for forgiveness or a need for accountability or a need for encouragement or a need for admonition. That's normal. Perfect relationships reveal that they're plastic. But imperfect men, sinners who are saved by grace, the wounded, they come together in such a way that Peter could say it's like family who are coming and they are faithful to Christ and they're faithful to one another and they don't let other people's messes and wounds keep them away. Secondly, he introduces to us in verse 13 a woman. And this, is, this was a lot of fun This past week, to read commentators as to who they think she is. Some think that she is the church. So that he says, I'm in Rome, and so she, the bride of Christ, which is what Two Rivers is, she, the feminine, sends you greetings. But others, and I tend to agree with them, think not. If you look, you'll see that in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5. This is Paul speaking, and he references Peter with a woman. Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? That's Peter's... Name. In other words, Peter had a companion of the most intimate level, and it was his wife. And she was a traveling companion. Do you remember in the movie Castaway, where Tom Hanks finally, he's on this deserted island following the crash of the plane, he finally gets a raft together, he finally gets over the surf. And he's so exhausted, it's calm water, he just kind of passes out. And as he comes to, he sees that Wilson, the soccer ball. Now, if, you're, if you haven't seen this, you're going to think I'm absolutely crazy. But Wilson, Wilson has gone overboard. Wilson is off the raft. And Tom Hanks is just beside himself. And the, the anguish, I mean, you feel it. You don't say, I must be nuts because my heart is breaking about this man's being sep- this man being separated from a soccer ball. Robert Zamikas, the director, went out of his way to show the anguish, to show the anguish as a result of our separation from even an inanimate object that we would choose to find the solace of companionship. It's as if Robert Zemeckis was saying, men and women are made for companions. We're not made for the solo life. And we're certainly not made to do this life on our own. We're not made to face trials on our own, our temptations on our own. God, in the beginning, looked to man. And he could say this not only about Adam, but Eve when she was created. It is not good. It's not a good thing. It's the first thing that God pronounced not good. It's not good for man to be alone. So God made Eve to be a companion and a helpmate. Now, if you're single, this is not a sermon about you've got to go out and get married in order to have this level of intimacy. Not at all you can have companions in a really good same-gender relationships. And it's those companions that will be found eternal. Not marriage, not children, not sex, not the institution of marriage. That, the romantic aspect, that's not what I see here with Peter. What I see is he's saying, in my mate who traveled with me, I had a companion. I just didn't have a romantic partner. I had a companion. I had... Our hearts were knit together. And by that, I mean that it wasn't someone that would tell another person what to do, but they would travel through various trials, facing various temptations together. Partnered together. In many ways, many times, without words. Just being together. Do you have a companion who is closer than a brother do you have a companion that you can say this person really knows me they know me intimately or is there someone that you can say i know them i know them just like a mate i know them i know their morning face I know their sin pattern. I know their struggles. And I pray and I stay and I love and I work with them and I'll never quit on them. I'll never give up on them. Peter found that, I believe, in his wife. This woman from Rome is Peter's wife. She was also a fellow servant, a fellow evangelist. She was in the ministry with him. They were in a ministry together. Translated, they, were, they, they did church together. They did missions together. There's a movie, a book, really. It's a book, and then later they made a movie called Quo Vadis. Quo Vadis. And Quo Vadis stands for where are you going? And Fox's Book of Martyrs actually highlights this as a tradition they don't have historical evidence, but there is traditional evidence that at one point during the reign of Nero, Nero, the persecution became so severe that Peter was urged to leave. And he's in the hills of Rome, leaving Rome, when he meets Jesus. And he asked Jesus, he says, Lord, Quo where are you going? And he said, I'm going to Rome to be crucified for a second time. And with that, Peter turned and went back to Rome. When he was in Rome, some number of months later, one of the first, in Fox's Book of Martyrs, one of the first martyrs was Peter's wife. They had corralled Peter, they brought his wife, who was a leader in the church, they brought his wife in front of him and they prepared to execute her and they did subsequently in front of him. And as they are preparing to execute her, he looks to her and he said, remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. And I believe she died with face raised to heaven remembering the Lord. She stayed steadfast because she had a companion. And Peter could commend her to stay steadfast because she had assisted him to be steadfast. It was more. It was a partner in ministry. Their hearts were so twined together in the Lord and in the ministry of the Lord. It was bigger than their marriage, bigger than their friendship, bigger than their family. It was community in the Lord and they kept one another steadfast and God worked through that. And then lastly, we're introduced to one, uh, one Mark, who he says is my spiritual son. And I've put down in your outline that I see Mark as a, a missional millennial. What do I mean by that? Whenever Mark appears in the scripture, and he is the author of the gospel of Mark, when Mark appears, he's always engaged in ministry. We believe that he was one of the tailgaters. He wasn't one of the intimate disciples. But his mother often entertained Jesus and the disciples in her home. And so he was one of the tailgaters just kind of watching the ministry unfold. But then following the resurrection of Jesus Christ and then his ascension, when the disciples are mobilized and they begin to carry the gospel, good news of forgiveness forward, we see Mark again. We see Mark partnered with the Apostle Paul and they're going on a mission journey. And there's some disruption to that such that Paul says, Mark is so young. He's so young. and He's still got some, some things in ministry he needs to work through. I, I'm not ready to go to the mission field with Mark again. So Barnabas says, I am. Let Mark come with me. Well, Mark shows up here again. He's He's missional. He's given his life over to ministry. He's given, he sees all of life through the lens of ministry, and part of that is looking to his friendships with intentionality, not, ca- not casuality, not just say, every conversation, every event, every opportunity to break bread together or sit on a front porch together. He's mindful that in the Christian world, and Christian relationships, something can be said. Something could be encouraged. Something, you could be a, an encouragement or you could share a discouragement. I've listed about ten things that, uh, that happen. The grace of relationship. About ten things. I said, Do we have slides this morning? Yes. We're going to just tick through these real quick and see... And imagine what a relationship with another person. and Some of you are experiencing this. And this is the presence of God helping you to be steadfast in your relationships and steadfast in facing trial. Conflicts actually get resolved. With steadfast friends, conflicts arise, but they actually have an ending. Number two, tough conversation turns out very positive. A person... Even such as Mark could talk to someone like Peter despite their age difference and have a tough conversation because with the gospel of grace, you're not attacking the other person or being attacked. There's no trying to be superior and somebody else be inferior. It's by say, it's saying we're both sinners who are saved by grace. We're both a son and a father. and We can have difficult conversations and they're going to turn out for healing. Number three. Someone reaches out to you in a time of struggle. Hey, brother. Hey, sister. looks like you're you're really having a tough time. I'm not here to give you advice. I'm here to help you explore. What do you think God's up to? What do you think God's doing right now? We may not know yet, but I can abide with you and pray. I can stay with you in the struggle. Number four, you're granted forgiveness. Because to the degree that I've experienced forgiveness, my friendships now, they model forgiveness. I didn't know a lot about Jesus. I knew really very, very little about Jesus when I was in college. I came to Christianity. I came a Christian because of a man named David Elliott. He was Jesus to me. I didn't know Jesus, but I knew David. And if God could take my life and transform me so that I could be the type of friend that befriended other people and stood with them, particularly in trial like David, that I, wanted, I didn't know Jesus, but I saw him in David. And I began to experience him befriending me and then expressing to me that I could be forgiven. And in my peer relationships or family relationships, there was the promise of restoring forgiveness there as well. Number five, uh, real love is expressed. Number six, that would be opposed to plastic love. You have a willingness to serve. There's something that now in this relationship, in this friendship, you know, here's Mark. Mark didn't say, you know what? I've got my comfortable life, and you're such a mess, Peter. I mean, man, you're in Rome, and things are coming down there, and you've got this congregation, these congregations, and wow, I just, I've got a comfortable life right now. No, Mark could say, Neither the difficulties that I face personally nor the desire I have for comfort will keep me from a friendship, a steadfast friendship with Peter and with the community. Number seven, casual friendship turns into a deep friendship. Hang in there, it really does. Uh, Number eight, someone overlooks a weakness. We began to venture, make ourselves vulnerable in the relationship. And it's not that somebody just closes a blind eye to it, but we find that they have weakness as well. And many times, their weakness is a match for ours so that we can strengthen one another. Power of the gospel. Number nine, someone applauds a strength. And this is more than just a data boy. It's as if we're hearing, well done. Or you have gifts. Or "You, you really touched me. It's as if we hear the voice of Christ. Where else are we getting that? Number ten. People have learned how to be honest instead of being mean. There's nothing like Christian friendships. Steadfast friendships that don't leave when it gets messy. They're willing to enter into messy relationships because here's the gospel. God entered into my screwed up messy relationship. I had a messy relationship with people and I certainly had a messy relationship with God. But that was not good enough for him. And it certainly wasn't enough for him to stay away. On the cross, Jesus got messy. Bloody, sweaty, weepy mess. He entered the mess of our world in order to enter in our broken world to begin to heal it. And a part of the way that he heals it is in steadfast friendships, faithful friendships. One way to look at this is called the doctrine of adoption. You know, he calls Mark his spiritual son. And we see that in 1 Timothy and also in 2 Timothy in the very opening remarks where Paul says that Timothy is a dear son to him, and that he's become a spiritual father to Timothy. But more importantly, as we prepare to come to this table, God, your Father, speaks to you. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And by sons, He means not simply males, but He means females and daughters as well. God looks at us and He says, you're my spiritual sons and my spiritual daughters. In John 15, 15, Jesus Christ, looking out over the table, says, no longer do I call you servants. Your steadfast friends. And as my friends, I have revealed God to you. I have revealed what I know to be true about God to you. Here Peter, knowing what it's like to be restored and befriended by Jesus Christ, says, go and do likewise. Don't go and look at people as far as your servants and say, this relationship, I just want you to serve me. Or, in this relationship, Wow, I just got to serve you. No, he says, no more servile relationships, but a relationship of true friends. Two friends or more revealing what God is up to in your life and searching to see what God is up to in their life, revealing what they know to be true about God to one another. And that, Peter says, keeps us steadfast. And by the way, um, I looked at verse 14 this week why don't we, what does this look like today? I think that if I told you at the end we're going to start practicing each Sunday greeting each other with a holy kiss, you would say, awkward. Now some cultures still do this and it's very natural for them. A kiss on the cheek, male to male, female to female. But everybody agreed as they looked at this scripture, that there must be, and with steadfast friends, if we have had peace made with God, and now we're able to look and say, you're an adopted son, you're an adopted daughter, I'm one too, you're in the family, peace is made with God, I can live at peace with you, let's be a family, let's have these intimate friendships with one another, that there must, because of the inward peace, there must be an outward sign. But it, In order for it to be effective, it has to be real. At the end of each service, we do this with words by passing the peace. And it does not escape me that we see people shake hands and we also see people hug one another. And those signs of affection are to a watching world that we really do love each other. It's not feigned. It's not fake. And when I'm hugging you, I'm not saying you're not good enough, or you're such a mess, I can't hug you today. What we're saying is, you're in this family. You're in this family where friendships with one another are made possible because of the friendship we now have with God. And those friendships God will use to get us through. So I end as I began. Do you have one? Do you just have one? And are you one? If not, let me encourage you this afternoon to begin with a prayer. I mean, how do you make a friend? How do you become that friend? I believe that it comes by saying, Lord, help me to be freshly acquainted again with Jesus, your own Son and my Lord, looking at me as a friend. And help me now. Lead me, as it were, to begin to develop a friendship of such intimacy with another person. And you may very well find that that person that you're ministering to as a steadfast friend, they are the one that becomes your steadfast friend as God knits those two hearts together. It's as if those two hearts come together and the kiss of love is saying, With your wounds and mine, we will meet each other with a hug, an embrace, and a kiss because of the peace that is ours through Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we would confess that we have not always been such steadfast friends for those that you have put us in relationship with. But forgive us, show us the very friendship of Christ, and use us. Use us for the cost of time, the cost of making ourselves vulnerable, the cost and scandal of being associated with people at such an intimate level, messy relationships. But Father, use us. We may very well be the person that you would have in the person of Christ to strengthen in the face of fiery trial or strong temptation another person. And that's a privilege. And then, Father, we also ask that we no longer face trials or temptation, particularly temptation, that I wouldn't face them alone. I would seek out others and say, you don't have to solve my problem, but I would ask that, like Christ, you bear this burden with me because it's crushing me. So, Father, help us and show us this day how we might be steadfast friends and then lead steadfast friends, even Christ, again into our life. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen.